Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the bestial forest and the bacterial Brent. <laughs> at least you'd go with bat shit. That would have been uh, really insulting. Oh, right no, not that's at good. all. You're, you know, you're like the virus that is Obama. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's one thing we're going to learn. That's right. I got a lot of tan And suits. so I figured... Get you wrapped up into the oligarchic elite that are trying to take over this country. And bestial, does that mean that I'm a bronze soul at this point? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Definitely bronze. I think I think in LaRouche speak, we're all at the bronze level. Oh. I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but that's just where we're at. What are we talking oh. about today, Dylan? So today we are concluding our series on Lyndon LaRouche. Last episode, we ended on, kind of chronologically, we ended on LaRouche going to jail in 1988. He was released in 1993. And so we want to you know, find out what he did afterwards and also just, you know, fill in some of the gaps in terms of his very intelligent, very big ideas <laughs> and let all of our listeners know all about all of that. It's all very important. <laughs> And before we get into the content, we just kind of right up top wanted to ask everyone if you could rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Again, it really helps us out. And we have a special challenge. If you could just let five of your friends know about our podcast, again, we would really appreciate it. really spreads the word. It's our listeners who are really helping us get out and to let people know. So if you could tell five people, rate, review, and subscribe, we would really appreciate it. And now, enough of that nonsense. Let's get into... More nonsense. <laughs> more, let's get into more nonsense. And this is kind of the final plank in the LaRouche a platform, so to speak, that we haven't really talked about so far, and that is LaRouche's great distaste for the environmental movement. And... We were able to get a very handy piece of propaganda from EIR, which is Environmentalism Means Genocide <laughs> by Susan Welsh. And this came out in a 1997 issue of Executive Intelligence Review. So we've talked about LaRouche's fondness for beam weapons and fusion energy. But we again, we haven't really talked about his utter disdain for environmentalism. <laughs> Luckily, in this piece, Welsh provides a convenient timeline of LaRouche's fight against, quote, zero population growth and anti-technology environmentalism, which is meant for the, quote, non-white third world, mm -hmm. birth control programs, and population wars. In other words, genocide. And population wars in this piece was in scare quotes, which didn't really make sense because I think for LaRouche... He took that very literally, I, so I don't think those scarecrows should have yeah, been in there. I, it's actually a well-known fact that defenders of truth and justice often use scare quotes in strange ways. I implore our listeners to check out the Twitter feed of the current president to see contemporary examples. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that you, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm not yet, I have not yet mastered the LaRouche <laughs> lexicon, and so I'm, th I'm thankful for you pointing that out. So by waging his war against environmentalism, LaRouche has, quote, sent the Malthusians into fits of apoplexy by exposing the true nature of their murderous doctrines. <laughs> a little bit of a side note, in case you're not familiar, Thomas Malthus was a late 18th, early 19th century economist who famously argued that population growth would eventually overtake the capacity to sustain them. In short, quote, the increase of population is necessarily limited by the means of subsistence, 
population does invariably increase when the means of subsistence increase and the superior power of population is repressed by moral restraint, vice, and misery. So very optimistic. Or, or in layman's terms, don't do more fucking than you have burrito covers and french fries or <laughs> shit can get really bad. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's the uh, the language of the people to, uh, yes. to help uh, explain Malthus's ideas. <laughs> In 1974, LaRouche's future wife, Helga Zepp, crashed the World Population Conference to confront another evil Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller III, Ooh, telling boy. him, quote, I would like to point out that while you are having this nice discussion, this conference is determining the future of human life. You are pushing zero growth, and on the basis of what you do, 20 to 40 million people will die. You are responsible for the death of 30 to 40 million human beings. So what do you think about that, Mr. Rockefeller? And what I would be thinking if I was Mr. Rockefeller was, wait, so 20 to 40 million will die, and yet I'll be responsible for 30 to 40 million of them. That doesn't, those numbers don't add up. <laughs> well, actually, I'm wondering if Helga just did, you know, factored in the numbers of the human beings Rockefeller the first and the second killed, though. I think they oh, murdered, I think it was like yeah, 5 million yeah. each or something like that. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay, so that, yeah, so he's responsible. Yeah, yeah definitely, he's definitely responsible there. for for John D. Rockefeller the first and the third. You gotta, your responsibility just adds up <laughs> as time goes on. Also in 1974, Larouche himself wrote the article "Rockefeller's Fascism with a Human Face." You know, it makes sense since diseases can disguise themselves as humans. Fascism, you know, can have a human face. Why not? Absolutely, yeah. and I believe we're going to be covering that later on yes. in the episode. So I hope you're excited. Mm -hmm. Larouche says, "Quote." The ignorant ecology freaks act out their tantrums on the stated or implicit assumption that man is in competition with ecology. These unfortunates define ecology as pertaining to life apart from human activities, and often regard the solution to ecological problems as being a lowering of the thermodynamic levels of human activity, essentially looking backwards towards such various happier days as feudalism or even Stone Age society. <laughs> the days where the queens of Stone Age ruled supreme. Yes, yes. Much more exciting than the kings of the feudal oh, age. Not, as not good, nearly yeah. as good of a band. Not nearly. <laughs> also, not a good uh, show, Happy Days. It was not a Happier Days. It was not a very good remake. <laughs> yeah, Happier Days. Yeah, that spinoff <laughs> I don't think ever no. really caught on. The Rouge goes on to compare humanity to the gardener and the environment to the garden. If the environmentalists get their way and, quote, put society into a zero state of negative auto-cannibalistic reproduction, <laughs> the garden surely will deteriorate. I'm sorry, did you say auto-cannibalistic reproduction? You know, that's probably the end game of Elon Musk's sick desire for self-driving cars. It was surely end with cars that reproduce by themselves, but then eat their own offspring. Oh, dear oh. God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, they'll only eat the cars, though, with low gas mileage. That would be helpful. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think... I think that would actually be a positive yeah, outcome. I would actually like that. Later in 1983, LaRouche wrote the book, There Are No Limits to Growth, and explained how environmentalism is racist and genocidal by linking that movement to a 1923 quote from your favorite Britain, <laughs> Bertrand Russell. The most evil man of the 20th century. The most evil man of the 20th century. And here is the Bertrand Russell quote. The less prolific races will have to defend themselves against the more prolific by methods which are disgusting, even if they are necessary. These races include the, quote, Asiatic races and Negroes. Now, this sounds pretty bad. Not the not the nicest thing to write. But since here at Nunder Called Ordinary, we're not totally intellectually dishonest, we thought it would be a, it, 
<laughs> we thought it would be useful to put the quote in context. And this is from page 273 of, I believe the book is called The Problems of Industrial Production, if I'm not mistaken. So here is the full quote. The Asiatic races will be longer and the Negroes still longer before their birth rate falls sufficiently to make their numbers stable without the help of war and pestilence. But it is to be hoped that the religious prejudices which have hitherto hampered the spread of birth control will die out and that within, say, 200 years, the whole world will learn not to be unduly prolific. Until that happens, the benefits aimed at by socialism can only be partially realized and the less prolific races will have to defend themselves against the more prolific by methods which are disgusting even if they are necessary. Again, that's that last part is what LaRouche quotes. So again, this isn't like the greatest sentence ever written, but it's a far, a far better interpretation is that Russell thinks that it's the religious beliefs of Asians and Africans that are preventing them from using birth control, which is why they're so prolific, oh, not man. something inherent There's to Dylan, their race. Dylan again shilling for big Anaphilo. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can't help but chill for one of the fathers of analytic philosophy. I, I'm sorry. I just can't. <laughs> it's inherent to my race. I, I, yeah. I just can't stop. It's doing a big it. problem. LaRue suggests that current population growth folks like the Brandt Commission, who seek to bring appropriate technology to the third world, are really upping the game from disgusting but necessary defense to disgusting but necessary <laughs> offense. Instead of helping the third world produce more food, such technology will increase soil depletion and inevitably decrease the population. So what, no one's heard of Brando? No, they're not using uh, Brando for in their agriculture. They're still using Gatorade oh. like a bunch of suckers. Oh, idiots. Oh, idiots. Oh, Lord, they haven't switched over yet. <laughs> LaRouche uh, continues, quote, to impose such a policy upon nations is outright mass murder. There's no other word for it. <laughs> I could think of a few other words like incorrect or false. But yeah, I also uh, other useful words here would include hyperbole and libel, <laughs> yes. I believe at, at some point. That's better. LaRouche uh, continues, quote, nor can the proponents of appropriate technologies, at least not the leading proponents with access to scientific information, argue that they do not know the limits to growth argument is all a big lie. They are imposing what amounts to mass murder on the more prolific races for no other reason than that it pleases them to do so. <laughs> They are viciously fanatical in their actions against those who consistently object to the immorality of their pleasure-seeking on this point. They are wont to commit mass murder against hundreds of millions of human beings, chiefly by economic methods, merely to gratify their pleasure. So, there are only two options, apparently. Either these folks are just mistaken, or they take genocidal pleasure in murdering millions of people. <laughs> Those options. are the only two options. I, I also do enjoy how Le Rouge keeps harping on a quasi-racist quote from Bertrand Russell when this man has about five billion fully extremely racist <laughs> yes. quotes unambiguously. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. he's trying to make it as if this is like the gotcha. Uh, yeah, like he's that. trying to be on the anti-racist high horse when he's really the anti-racist low-hanging fruit. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh yeah. In our last episode, we documented several, <laughs> several folks that he uh, was not a big yeah, fan of. The whole and, list. So, yeah, seems. Yeah, everybody yeah. but him, basically. <laughs> yeah. yep. And maybe one or two of his followers. Maybe. The environmentalists themselves get the same treatment. While they don't take the same genocidal hedonism of the limit to growth people, they are willing for billions to be murdered merely because they find industrial society and technological progress, quote, psychologically oppressive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you know anything about environmentalism, you know it's all about psychology. It's like the basis. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's all about our feelings. And in fairness, I think living underwater 
would be quite psychologically <laughs> yeah, oppressive. That, so that, I yeah, you gotta say. <laughs> I can, yeah, I think that is true. LaRouche connected these satanic schemes right up to Hitler himself. Well, we did learn in the last episode that Nazism and Satanism were birthed from Kant's metaphysics, so this isn't surprising. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all surprising. Quote, Like the Nazi regime during World War II, the world's most powerful international monetary and financial agencies today have targeted between 120 and 150 million black Africans for death through genocide death by famine, and epidemic. Even the enemy of the people, the mainstream media, joined the genocidal fund, as described by LaRouche in 1987. Quote, An editorial in yesterday's Washington Post warns Brazil to cut its population or else. And to clarify for our listeners, we were unable to find this specific editorial. All we could find were various articles about Brazil putting a moratorium on debt payments to focus on internal investment. <laughs> and there were there was one in the Washington Post. I found one in the New York Times, but I couldn't find an editorial hmm. about this from the Washington Post. As long as the Washington Post only calls for Brazil to cut out the portion of its population that voted for Bolsonaro, I can, behi- <laughs> I can get behind that. I can see that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depends on how nice they do it. Yeah. In, the, in, the, I, um, I, in the most humane way possible, but that goes without saying. Yeah, it's the it's the Richard Spencer yes. approach. You know, it would just be nice if those people just didn't exist. Uh, you know, yeah. we're not going to do anything violent to it's, them. But yeah, it would even just though it's nice. the vast majority of the nation, it's a very peaceful transition. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. To continue the quote, didn't we see enough of that in Nazi-occupied Poland? The Post evidently fails to grasp this point, that merely because neo-Malthusian population policies have become fashionable among liberals does not mean that genocide is anything but genocide. Mm. I suggest that the Post get off the airy realm of rhetoric and get down to (laughs) earth. Oh, but the air is so eloquent. You should really try it up here. (laughs) Yeah, and as since we are all part of the higher peace movement, (laughs) there's more peace the higher up you go. So the airy realm, that's, that's where the peace is at. LaRouche also says, quote, If you wish to reduce the population of Brazil, please have the honesty to publish a list of the names and addresses of the Brazilians who wish to have eliminated. Have the decency to inform them of your intent to kill them, and at least do them the courtesy of offering to publish their reply in the newspaper. But be sure to give them the chance to reply before you kill them. Otherwise, you got to buy a bunch of Ouija boards, you have to have a bunch of seances, and just logistically very difficult. That's crazy. By now... Our listeners would be forgiven for thinking that the only way to kill people is economic control over population growth. But don't be silly. There are way more ways to do it than that. In 1992, the Russians opposed banning chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, including Freon, to deal with the depletion of the ozone layer. And funny story, I actually remember this whole debate, even though I was so young, because the original asthma inhaler that I used was banned as a result of this. It actually contains Big CFCs. Government. I don't know how much damage I was doing to the ozone layer by being sickly, <laughs> but, you know, I have to admit, I played a part. Well, <clears throat> let me ask you this, Dylan. Do you miss that old asthma inhaler? Was that more special than the ones that you use now? I think no, oh. is the simple answer. I think it was a kind of a rough transition period just because... It was, you know, I was so, so used, used to the okay. same one that right, I had well, to get a new let's one. let's be fair, okay, because I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that do miss that inhaler, okay, and you oh, know, yeah. we're libertarians, Absolutely. so, and, and not only that, but the thing is, the president misses a certain hairspray, aerosol hairspray that he used to have, uh-huh, and yeah. he assures mm, me yes. that this long band and cherished aerosol hairspray couldn't possibly leave Trump Tower to affect the ozone layer. <laughs> 
And that's, you know, that sounds science. So if you have yep. an asthma yep. attack and you're one of those aficionados of those old school inhalers, just find your nearest Trump Tower, do it there and everything will be fine. Yeah, I kind of like the Trump argument, especially for the inhaler. I mean, I'm inhaling all of it. So <laughs> the only ozone layer I'm depleting is inside my own body. <laughs> that's true. And I think... Frankly, I think I should have the right to deplete my internal. I'll fight for you, right? For God, thank you, thank you. So, why was Larouche concerned so much for Trump's hairspray and my asthma inhalers? Because, quote, the phase out of CFCs will kill people, millions of people, especially in the developing sector. There is no scientific evidence for banning CFCs, just ideology, speculation, and computer models that don't correspond to Dylan's reality. Dylan's a ghost. He should have been dead. He lost his <laughs> CFC and Heller. Believe it or not, I'm living in my own sixth sense over here. I really enjoy the first line of that quote. It's it's not that banning CFCs will be bad for the economy, but you know, rather that if you ban them, it will kill people. So we all know we need CFCs to survive. That's just, we all yeah. know that. You know, Freon, for example, it's high in vitamin A and <laughs> riboflavin after all, <laughs> yes. especially the GMO golden Ooh. Freon. Oh, for the golden souls. Yeah. Yeah. And for the golden <laughs> souls, that's exactly right. Sometimes, however, these more indirect methods of environmental violence are not enough. And the oligarchy has to fund more extreme proposals. This was explained in a 1995 EIR cover story, Prince Philip deploys worldwide green terrorism. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you know, I mean, they're the biggest drug pressures in the world. You know, for a fact, the oligarchy is into some terrorism. Oh, yeah, for sure. Quote, today's radical ecology movement was the creation of Prince Philip's World Wildlife Fund and similar agencies controlled by the secretive and powerful London-based Club of the Isles. Using the vast financial resources of an international network of tax-exempt charitable trusts, and buttressed by its preeminent role in the world illicit narcotics trade and its control over a global offshore money laundering apparatus, the club poured tens of billions of dollars into founding a plethora of groups aimed at shutting down virtually all advanced Ooh. technology. Hmm. A sizable portion of these funds went into the creation of an international ecological terrorist underground, which today poses the greatest terrorist threat on oh, Earth. Well, we all know that hippies planting trees in a forest is a far bigger threat than ISIS cutting oh. off people's heads. I mean, that's <laughs> that goes without saying. I mean, once you stop growth, once you halt technological progress, all of our heads are cut oh, off. True. I mean, that's really how we keep our it heads up. Yes. And so ISIS is working on a very local yeah, level local where the literal. eco-terrorists, they want to cut off all our heads at once. <laughs> <laughs> Should have left to that. So that I think that's the main last plank of the LaRouche ideology, yeah. if, if you want to call it that, is just... You know, we need beam for, weapons, we need nukes. For lack of a better word, his we, ideology. For lack of a better term, yeah, you know, the Queen of England is, you know, secretly a Babylonian Persian money magic slave system proponent selling all the drugs. And then we got the anti-environmentalism. <laughs> but that was all, you know, again, that was all mostly from the 90s and before. So what has LaRouche been doing more recently? Well, He's been getting really engaged by our former president, President Barack Obama. And it turns out Barack Obama is basically Hitler. I, <laughs> I didn't know if any of, of you knew that. That's obvious. And so we we need to get into why he thought that, you know, environmentalists and Malthusian freaks. They weren't the only Nazis around. Good old Obama and his Obamacare. <laughs> I, excuse me. Obamacare <laughs> are also straight out of the Hitler playbook. Anton Chaitkin, a high-ranking LaRouchian, explained all of this to a listening session of the Federal Council Coordinating Comparative Effectiveness Research Committee. Ooh. Quote, 
President Obama has put in place a reform apparatus reviving the euthanasia of Hitler's Germany in 1939 that began the genocide there. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who is on the committee, and other avowed cost-cutters on this panel also lead a propaganda movement for euthanasia. They shape public opinion and the medical profession to accept a death culture, to let physicians help kill patients whose medical care is now rapidly being withdrawn in the universal healthcare disaster. Hey, death panels. I remember that one. Exactly. This is actually where this is where death panels come from is LaRouche, which is amazing. (laughs) Dr. Emanuel, who was listening to all this, had a chance to respond, quote, I think I do have a very long record of writing against the legalization of euthanasia. So the association of me and that seemed a little strange. Oh, well, now back to murdering old people. I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. <laughs> no, no, no. But he no did I did not say that. I have, that. A feel, I have a feeling that LaRouche was probably behind that infomercial for the Republican Party where they were throwing grandmothers off a cliff. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, that was absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it has LaRouche written all over it. Now, oh, yeah. this panel at first thought this was just some random weirdo who was spouting all this. But what they didn't realize that this was part of a broader campaign to link Obamacare to the T4 mass euthanasia program of Adolf Hitler. From the Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, The T4 program, also called T4 Euthanasia Program, was a Nazi-German effort framed as a euthanasia program to kill incurably ill, physically or mentally disabled, emotionally distraught, and elderly people. Adolf Hitler initiated the program in 1939, and, while it was officially discontinued in 1941, killings continued covertly until the military defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. I mean, obviously the program didn't go all the way because Hitler himself was pretty emotionally distraught and mentally disabled. I mean, otherwise, how do you account for the constant ranting and raving about nothing? And also, (laughs) you know, that stupid mustache was something of a physical deformity, I'd say. So they should have killed him, too. I I agree. But I I think you're wrong, though, (laughs) that the program didn't go all the way. That's why he committed suicide. He believed so strongly (laughs) in the T4 program. He thought, well, you know, there's one last person to get at this point. It, w- it wasn't because he was being surrounded by all the allies on no, all sides absolutely in Berlin not. He, and had no way out. He was principled and, to the end. Okay. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad to know that. So this kind of program to associate Obamacare with the T4 program included the now infamous posters of Obama with a Hitler mustache that I'm pretty sure we've all seen by now. Well, hey, hey, Dylan, you know who else wore a tan suit besides Obama? Adolf Hitler. Oh, my yeah. God. I yeah. didn't see that. He did. Uh, you know who else had a Hitler mustache? Michael Jordan in a Haynes commercial. Oh, so, oh that's a <laughs> I don't know. Just that's a bit of a weirder reference. I'm not sure how that, that was connects. a random <laughs> interject there, but. Do you think Michael Jordan is part of the oligarchic elite? I could see it. I could see it. Yeah, maybe. Who do you think is part of the oligarchical elite? <laughs> Email us at nondarecallitordinary at gmail.com. And let exactly. Us know. Is Michael Jordan part of the oligarchy? <laughs> let us know. <laughs> hashtag. Yeah, hashtag Michael Jordan oligarchy? I don't know. We haven't, we haven't figured <laughs> out the hashtag. Michael yet. Jordan is Hitler. <laughs> No, don't don't actually start that wow. hashtag. Please. Yeah, no, please, please, please don't start that hashtag. We don't yeah, no. we don't need that on us. No, we do not endorse that one. Hitler is the Michael Jordan of being Hitler, but that's <laughs> what the fuck? that was pretty good. Jeff Steinberg, who edited the Executive Intelligence Review, explains the strategy. "Quote: We went after this thing five months ago and put everything out publicly through our magazine and websites, and decided to make a very harsh and shocking point. It is our view that there is a lot of people." who for pragmatic reasons would be inclined to accept policies that could take us down that slippery slope to Hitler's policies in 1939. 
And they were successful in this propaganda campaign to a degree, even getting some mainstream recognition in the form of Sarah Palin, Newt Gingrich, and Senator Charles Grassley spreading the falsehood that Obamacare would institute what Brent called death panels. Ah, is this also where Dinesh D'Souza got the whole Democrats are the real Nazis narrative? You know, he uses it wouldn't surprise me for a second if that's where Dinesh D'Souza yeah, got it from. True. Oh, I, I always assumed he just got it out of his ass. That, was always, oh, yeah, that could that be too. true. Yeah. I mean, there, true source. We already talked about the black vortex in the in the <laughs> hole in LaRouche's skull. And I imagine there's a black vortex in Dinesh D'Souza's ass. And so they're probably... He might have got it out of its ass, but that really directly connects to Lyndon LaRouche's mind. Sean Hannity even identified Emanuel, the same person Chapkin had, as the author of the death panel idea. Yeah, great minds think alike. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Glenn Beck, too, jumped on this idea, accusing oh, yeah. Emanuel of, quote, the devaluing of human life, putting a price on each individual. The death panel is not a firing squad. But rationing is inevitable, and they know it. Yep. And then he turned red and broke down in tears on live television. All while wildly scribbling furiously on his chalkboard at the same time. <laughs> uh, good day. Good at multitasking. You know, you know in retrospect, uh, Glenn Beck's show can be characterized as a theatrical expression of sorts of LaRouche's multidimensional paranoia. I think that's oh, what he was really yeah. going for. Yeah, definitely. He just yeah. he, it wasn't Should be turned into a Broadway play or something. Yeah. Yep. It wasn't just total. That's the problem. It wasn't total multidimensional paranoia. He never. <laughs> If you gave him a few more years, I think he would have got there. But he just well, yeah, he and Alex Jones were always competing to get the total multi-dimensional paranoia trophy. I think. I think yeah. that was yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's true. In a town hall forum, Representative Barney Frank was confronted by a Larusian quote. This is the T4 policy, the Hitler policy in 1939, when he said certain lives are not worth living. We should not spend the money to keep them alive, which is exactly what Ezekiel Emanuel has said. Why do you continue to support a Nazi policy as Obama has expressly supported in this policy? And Frank's response was quick and to the point, quote, on what planet do you spend most of your time? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Which I think is exactly, exactly correct. So calling the sitting president uh. Hitler, it's all fun and games. But unfortunately, Brent has something to say about how this political cult really got dangerous with the case of Jeremiah Duggan. That's right. And so this is this is um, taken mostly from a Washington Post article titled No Joke, Eight-Time Presidential Candidate Lyndon LaRouche may be punchline on The Simpsons, but his organization and the effect it has on the young recruits is dead serious by April Witt. Yeah. So Jeremiah Duggan was a 22-year-old college student from London, England. On March 27, 2003, he called his mother... Her name is Erica Duggan, a retired school teacher at 4.30 a.m. in the morning. So Erica could tell something was wrong when Jeremiah said, Mom, I'm in big trouble. Jeremiah went to Germany to attend an anti-Iraq war protest and conference with a group called the Nouveau Solidarité. Before he left, he let his family know that the group was, quote, extreme and associated with an American presidential candidate, that being our friend, Linda LaRouche. Just to let you know, Mom and Dad, I'm going to go join a bunch of extremists. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> That's fine, son. Um, <laughs> they're, you know, they're extremists, but they're only moderate extremists, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. So on the phone, Jeremiah said to his mother, quote, This involves solidarity. I can't do this. I went out. It is not something I can do. And when it involves so solidarity mother, and you can't do it, you got to get out. That's <laughs> yeah, you do. That's how you immediately. <laughs> So Erica was deeply disturbed and told her son that it was okay, just leave the group and come home immediately. That is when the phone cut out. Jeremiah called Erica back, 
with his voice shaking, he said, quote, I'm frightened. Erica said, what is it? Tell me. God. So Erica explained later that Jeremiah was having difficulty speaking, saying he sounded terrified because of that. I found myself saying, I love you. It just came out. I thought his life was in danger. When I said, I love you, then he said to me in a very, very loud voice, I want to see you now. His mother asked him to tell her where he was. Jeremiah said, Weiselbaden. Erica's father was a German-born Jew who had fled Hitler's Germany, and most of his relatives died in the Holocaust. You guys know that's that thing that didn't happen, though, right? No, I'm not talking about global warming. Yeah, no, like Willis Carto, we've that learned we that talked about in the last episode. He assures me it right. didn't happen. Remember, they were, as Dylan put it, the gold stars were just rewards of sorts that the Nazis gave to the prisoners. Admittedly, there were Jewish prisoners, but they were well-treated, well-fed, and just very happy people. That's right. That's all correct, except for they were sheriff stars. But okay, go ahead. That's true. They were sheriff stars, and we can forgive them being prisoners because they were treated well, people. Come on. (laughs) I like that, you know. Like, okay, yeah, there were some prisoners. Okay, we'll admit that part, but... So she asked her son to spell the name of the city because she couldn't quite make out what he was saying to her. He was halfway through spelling it when, again, the line was cut off. So according to the Washington Post article, 35 minutes later, Jeremiah was dead. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, after this tragedy, even Jeremiah's family wanted answers, so they began looking into the LaRouche cult. Though this wasn't the first time Erica had heard about the name LaRouche. In 2003, Jeremiah called her to say that he had met a LaRouche activist while he was living in Paris, who wrote for a French-language LaRouche newspaper, which is the one I mentioned earlier. Jeremiah told his mother that, quote, the literature he gave Jeremiah to read in French didn't always make total sense. <laughs> but Jeremiah chalked it up to his difficulty translating unfamiliar political terms. Or, I'm thinking, maybe that it was just 100% pure grade-A gibberish. Yes. So yeah. That's, yeah, definitely. That's my maybe it's just an issue with translation has been a staple of normalizing nonsense for many years now. <laughs> And I can see that. And it's very unfortunate that that can be used as a tool for uh, cult indoctrination. Gibberish is a non-language in any language. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Jeremiah said this LaRouche activist had invited him to Germany for the anti-Iraq war protesting conference. He was in a school and busy studying for exams. So Erica said he asked her to do an internet search for him to find out who LaRouche was. She told the Washington Post that she, quote, tried but misspelled the name as LaRoche, I guess. It's spelled, she spelled it as L-A-R-O-C-H-E. Mm-hmm. Or maybe LaRoche is the way you yeah. pronounced it a couple LaRoche, of times. LaRoche, yeah. I fucked it up <laughs> at the very beginning of this yes. podcast. Yeah, the very subject just, of this Roche series. Just, just Roche sounds right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. He just won't die. After the beam weapon nuclear holocaust that LaRouche will bring on, the only thing that will be alive are LaRoche and the roaches. So, yeah, that seems right. Of course, when discussing this, she breaks down in tears thinking, had she been more careful about getting the exact spelling of LaRouche's name right, her son may still be alive. So, you know, I I actually just did an internet search for LaRoche. LaRouche, LaRoche, LaRoche, there we go. And I found several people with that last name, such as a fashion designer, a French actor, a French general an early female pilot, a British member of parliament, and and an American horticulturalist, and oddly, a Titanic survivor, and why not, a figure skater. So, yeah, none of these people have a psychopolitical co-leader, so, I mean, I guess... Oh, you know what, then, in that case, if I ever have a kid and it's a boy, I'm going to name him LaRoche, 
just to be yeah. on the safe side because yeah. then I know for sure he won't grow up to be a horrific cult leader. He could be yeah. an environmentalist though yeah. and then you're fucked. Yeah. But anyway, oh, shit. Uh, if he's a horticulturalist. Yeah. And just to, uh, it goes without saying but this is not in any way Erica's fault. I, I can only imagine. No, not at all. Yeah. You know, how she feels oh, yeah. about it and I know that's not any comfort but I think right. this is the kind of thing this is an easy trap to get involved with, not just with dealing yeah. with cults, but really with anything. We can't know everything. We can't blame ourselves for those things. We just have to. I think right. it's for the rest of us. You know, I, I hope our podcast is playing a tiny part in spreading information about these losers. And I mean, LaRouche yeah. and his associates. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's easier to find what? out. The only thing that can be really truly blamed are these cults and the sick, yes. twisted fucks. They're that, leaders. You know, yeah. so exactly. If there's. You lost yourself to, or I'm sorry, you lost a family member to a cult or something like that, and it's not like you could have done anything different. It's yeah, it's, no, it's, exactly. It's just irrational bullshit all the way down. Yeah, there. it's just nothing. And we'll find out. Like she becomes like badass about this fighting the cult. So Jeremiah's parents later found Jeremiah's notebook he took to the LaRouche cult convention. Written in the pages were sentences such as, "quote Question your own false assumptions." So according to French university student Jeremiah had befriended at the conference. Jeremiah was critical of most of what he was hearing at this conference. So, see, he is questioning his own false assumptions that LaRouche was anything, has anything of value to say. So, that's good. Yeah, the problem is he was questioning the at wrong the false assumptions. Uh oh. <laughs> his false assumptions True. were that beam weapons were dangerous and that recycling <laughs> is good. And those were terrible assumptions right. and he should have dropped them ASAP. Yes. Despite this, Jeremiah and his friend decided to, quote, stay on together for a much smaller cadre school where LaRouche organizers would be trained following this anti-war protest in Berlin would commence. So the cadre school was held in Weiselbaden at a youth hostel which held around 50 people. Jeremiah stood at this school because not only was he British, but he was also Jewish. Oof. So he's a lizard. Got it. Uh, I'm the lizard I king. Mean... I can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh horrible so his parents suspect that jeremiah's nationality and some of his religious comments maybe marked him as a quote agent or special target to these cultists well yeah he's british right. and jewish the middle of that yeah. venn diagram is just pure oligarchy i mean there's no yeah, the oval in the middle of that venn diagram that's the eye of the lizard oh <laughs> symbol like, upon you, know, you symbol. gotta you gotta find the secret occult symbols and everything that's that's right yeah even this podcast Listen to all of oh, our there's, episodes there's a multiple, lot of multiple times. You have to listen to and download all the people all of listening them. right now. Just start piecing together some of the yeah. uh, numerology that you can find in this podcast, and you're going to find out just how fucking satanic we yeah, are. Yeah, I think also, too, you'll get to it if you somehow like start leaving more reviews, like you started through a lot yeah. of reviews. That's um, part of the numerology. Yeah, <laughs> like it's not you ha First, you have to count up all the numbers that we mention on the entire <laughs> podcast series. Then you have to add up the number of reviews for every platform. And the higher that number is, the more the humanist elite will triumph over their oligarchy enemies. And so we just need to get that number higher and higher and higher. Exactly. Dylan, they got to do some work themselves. Don't give them all the keys. Come on. Well, no, I'm saying that if they as you know, they if they rate review, they get the number higher. And so you got to no, get no, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. no, so I understand. I'm saying, I'm saying don't even tell them that they got to they got to figure everything out. OK, that's, that's true. That's, you know, OK, Man, that's that makes true. Sense. So Jeremiah had a girlfriend who lived in Paris with at the time uh, before this, and he was speaking with her over the phone while he was in Germany leading up to his death. He said to her that he was under, quote, too much pressure. She said he told her his limbs hurt and his mouth was very dry. She stated, quote, he said they were doing experiments on people with computers and magnetic things. The government. 
I was very worried, but wondered if he hadn't started to imagine things because of information overload. He also told me he no longer knew what reality was, what was truth, and what was lies. Hey, so it's like, you know, America 2019. Yep. We're yeah. very familiar with that. So that's nice. Yeah. It, he, Jeremiah's it just sounds girlfriend. like he's been on Twitter too much, actually. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. So Jeremiah's girlfriend desperately tried to convince him to jump on a train to Paris as soon as he could get away. She said that he promised that he would. So what happened to Jeremiah? Well, just before 6 a.m., after he made those frantic phone calls to his mother, a driver of a BMW saw a pedestrian run into the roadway. So if it was an Audi, I think we may have a more Oh, lead man, here, but it was Serge Benheon. Oh, no. Yeah, our last news episode, oh. you'll find out about the Audi. Yeah. So this driver swerved out of the way to miss Jeremiah, but clipped him with his side view mirror, knocking him down. Jeremiah apparently then jumped up and ran away. His arms were raised and his mouth wide open, according to other witnesses. So unfortunately, another car hit Jeremiah and he was run over, suffering severe head trauma and died on the road, according to the police. So the police concluded that it was a suicide. So the police didn't investigate the final hours before his death, according to the article. LaRouche's cultist brought Jeremiah's luggage and passport to the police station. So that's, you know, that's kind of nice of them. Always bring, you know, enemies, agents, personal belongings to the police after their death. It's just common courtesy, I would think. I'm actually surprised they didn't just mail them directly to the Queen of England herself. (laughs) I don't know why you would go through an intermediary at this point. I mean, we know where she lives. Right. (laughs) So his parents flew out to Germany immediately and were told by German police that, quote, the Rouge officials claim that Jeremiah had suffered from suicidal impulses and had been a mental patient at the Tavistock Institute, which his parents were outraged because they said Jeremiah had no prior history of mental illness. According to this Washington Post article, the coroner determined later that it was most likely not a suicide. Any indication of why the coroner made that conclusion? Oh, I mean, come on, Dylan. You think there's any merit to what he said? I think your LaRouche derangement is <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Quite frankly. That's fair. That's fair. Very, Actually, very conspiratorial of you to say. Oh, man. It's interesting. Like, the article, he says that all, I don't know, the coroner says that all the evidence pointed to the fact that Jeremiah was, quote, found in a state of terror. So, I guess that's oh, the Oh, I got it. Now. So, it's not like yeah. he intentionally like just wanted to, to commit suicide. He was scared into going into the yeah. room. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. If we're, so, it makes sense but, if we're going to believe what the coroner has to say about it. That's right. for sure. <laughs> Never believes coroners. I think LaRouche's claim is far more believable, quite frankly. Yeah, he's he's yes, the authoritative so. source so on how yes. Jeremiah yeah. died. Absolutely. On everything, really. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. As an authoritative source on everything, this would fall under <laughs> that. So. Exactly. Okay. The world's greatest source on everything. Yep. But LaRouche Cole isn't done with Jeremiah. So in the in the June 25th issue of EIR, LaRouche writes that Jeremiah's death was not just part of the U.S.-British conspiracy to, quote, get LaRouche, and we'd all know that one, wow. but that it is also, quote, linked to the failed search for Iraqi weapons of mass destruction and the suicide of the British weapons expert and senior civil servant David Kelly. So according to the Washington Post article, quote, the publication doesn't explain the connection. It lists them on the same timeline as if they are part of the same unfolding anti-LaRouche plot. Yeah, the Washington Post, again, they're just ignoring the authoritative sources. EIR has at its disposal. It can't just Mm -hmm, list them all the time. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, one thing to note, this is a very Scientology tactic where when people die in their care or kind of in their presence, they immediately go to slur them. And to yes. and to uh, slander them and say, I mean, there's cases in Scientology where they say people are prostitutes and they're addicted to drugs. But this is all in the same kind of wheelhouse of cult tactics. Absolutely. 
Terrible. So in an email to the Washington Post, LaRouche declined to answer any questions about Jeremiah's time with his organization in Germany or his death, stating that the matter is already addressed in full in his latest pieces of campaign literature titled Children of Satan, Part 3, <laughs> The Sexual Congress for a Cultural Fascism. No, part 3. Which, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure, it's been a while since I've worked there, but is it, if that's a children's book, right? I think I've seen it at Barnes & Noble <laughs> featured in the, in the children's section. Right? No. I think you're... <laughs> I think you're thinking of Children of Satan Four, the sexual oh, yeah, the right. sexual Congress for Cultural Marxism. Oh, it's a very different book. Yeah. That one is for the kids. Though. That's that's so true. That's true. I get it mixed up. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Children of Satan Three was more YA, which I or teen. I think it's teen. Yeah, fiction. it was a dystopian novel, I believe. Yeah, yeah and then Part so. Four is when they were like, let's you know bring the age back and put it straight into the children's <laughs> department. In this article, it states that Jeremiah's poor mother is actually just quote a dupe who has been pressured into joining the worldwide conspiracy to get LaRouche. Wow. God damn. Yeah, you know, just like those grieving mothers from Sandy Hook Massacre. Actually, I wonder how hard it would be to get work as a crisis actor. You think there's like auditions? Do you think they're on like a super intense as you act out your lines in front of the Illuminati high priest? Oh, yeah, they gotta be. I mean, well, yeah. while preparing for the last movie I made, I thought the Sandy Hook parents were just such good actors that I decided to cast them. You know, however, after doing a little research, uh, it turned out they weren't actors. Yeah. So. Oh, yep. that damn. Sucks. That was a sad day when I learned that. In all seriousness, though, to all those people out there harassing the Sandy Hook parents, I, I hope you go to hell. Yeah, you are truly yeah. pieces of shit. I mean, yeah, that's, that's disgusting. That's the, well, at least like the, the court rulings are going low. towards the way we should. They're, they're definitely going in the favor of the people, the victims' parents, yeah. or, you know, like the victims' parents at Sandy Hook. They're oh, yeah. Yeah, the lady. They uh, take guess, every penny yeah. Alex Jones has. Yeah. yeah. Alex, oh, yeah. Uh, Alex Jones's latest defense of uh, his indefensible accusations about the Sandy Hook parents is that he was in a state of psychosis. Have you seen this? Have you seen yes, the uh, I deposition? Reading, I haven't yeah. seen it. Yeah, that he let, that's sense. a quote. He said he was in a state of psychosis where he believed everything was staged. Everything, yep. And that's why he thought the uh, <laughs> Sandy Hook... And I'm sure he'll go on his radio show and he'll be like... They made me say I was in a state of psychosis, but I, re I really was. Yeah. I was he, like, he's, he kind of went back on some of the other things he said. Like yeah. One of his defenses then, was that he's an actor and it's all an act. That was one of the right, defenses. Right, right, right. And then he's he goes on to his yeah. radio show... And he says, no, that's not true. I'm just referring to the time I put the Joker Obama mask on my face or some stupid shit. And said, yeah. Like, Sometimes yeah, and I then someday in the future of court cases will be like, there was a time where I went on radio shows and said, I swear, I said, you know, they made me say I was an actor with it's just going to be never ending yeah. cycle of constantly so saying I'm sure we'll hear that, a yeah. follow up on that. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. By the way, uh, it's not a defense to say that you were playing a character to instigate a harassment campaign against the people whose children, small children, right. have been murdered in a shooting. I just also want to make that right. very clear. Oh, yes. Right. Okay, so Jeremiah's mother, Erica, is relentless, continuing her search for the truth about her son and exposing the cult of LaRouche. So the Washington Post article ends with her quote, saying, quote, I suppose he, LaRouche, has security people who have guns, and they may try to shoot me. Then the world would know the truth, wouldn't they? Damn. So that's completely depressing. Anyway. But yeah, sorry to end very heavily. But yeah, that's yeah. Um, at least she's trying to get to the truth. But yeah. it's very, very, very sad. But way depressing. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Jeremiah was certainly a victim. But hey, guys, you know, do you know who's a bigger victim? In fact, the ultimate victim. Can you guess? Anyone? Um, no. Lyndon Larouge, oh, of course. Oh God! So oh, right on the tip of my tongue. That's what this next section is about. Is just how big of a victim the poor man was. Oh, so, poor guy. Oh man. In two thousand. LaRouche pens the article, he's a bad guy, 
but we can't say why, <laughs> in which he describes his entanglements with the law in such a way as to make Joseph K.'s experiences in Kafka's The Trial look like nothing. <laughs> he writes that during the last 10 years, even though friends of LaRouche are constantly providing the Justice Department with evidence that demonstrates just what swell guys he and his associates are, they simply will not accept any oh, of it. Oh, man. Quote, the Justice Department has responded to that evidence repeatedly in judicial proceedings and elsewhere with the statements to the effect, you have to understand why we had to do it that way. You couldn't use our secret files in court. So we had to get them in other ways. Believe us. We can't tell you why, but he is a very bad guy. What is the evidence that I am an alleged bad guy? The answer has been repeatedly to the effect, we can't tell you. The evidence is secret. By the way, for all of our listeners, just listen to this episode and the past three episodes in this series for the very public and very not secret evidence that he is, in fact, a bad guy. It's it's out there. It's out there. So I can only imagine what the secret evidence is. Oh, God. I don't even oh want God. to know that. Jesus Christ. OK, so, you know, how can such a corrupt and libelous system perpetuate? What are its secrets? LaRouche has the answer. Quote, in brief, these attacks on me and my associates, which have been virtually continuous over nearly 30 years, have been modeled on the government's and a corrupt mass news media's resort to those fraudulent star chamber methods, which are notorious from the history of the practice of 17th century English law. These are methods of ruling by aid of the enforcement of official lies. Today, in that practice of tendentious sophistry common to today's U.S. government and its legal practice, lies are not called lies. Instead, they are called matters of policy. And really, there's so many different kinds of matters of policy. Matters of policy by omission. White matters of policy. I could go on, but, you know, the files are secret. <laughs> <laughs> the article is a who's who of all the people, agencies, and things that have allegedly persecuted LaRouche up until that point. LaRouche lays out the context one must understand to appreciate the true depth of this persecution. Quote, To understand competently this 1983 to 2000 aspect of the ongoing Get LaRouche operation, one must go to the root of those operations. One must take into account the political setting of four earlier pre-1983 phases of the same operation, a series of Justice Department and related operations beginning no later than 1973. And heavy emphasis on no later. You know the kids who are bullying LaRouche for being an anti-Hume Quaker were definitely CIA dupes. You know it for a <laughs> fact. Obviously, it goes way back. How does LaRouche begin his story of woe? With assassination attempts on his life? Duh! Oh, Have you yeah, not been paying yeah, attention yeah, to this yeah, podcast yeah. series at all? <laughs> After detailing how, in the early 1970s, the FBI planned to, quote, eliminate him with the help of their friends in the U.S. Communist Party, he goes on to expose the true enemies of the people. Quote, There is another political feature of that same 1973 FBI targeting of me for elimination, which is also a very significant part of a nearly 30-year record of corrupt complicity by government and mass media. The evidence against the mass media includes the role of the New York Times in January and February of 1974 in producing a massive fraudulent campaign of public defamation of me in the Times' effort to provide diversionary cover-up for that FBI elimination operation. During the entirety of nearly three decades since the lying concoction by the Times, virtually the entirety of the U.S. major news media has become a wittingly complicit part of that same continuing dirty political operation centered in the U.S. Department of Justice. 
Typical of this are a celebrated policy statement, which appears on the editorial page of the Washington Post on September 24th, 1976, and the fact of later expressions of precisely that point in operations by both the Post, Times, and others up to the present time. <gasps> Whew, that's all totally Jesus. true. That's so much knowledge just pouring directly into our minds. I, know, I, know, <laughs> I, I also think like how ironic, you know, the man that destroyed all of safe spaces and replaced them with hostile spaces, as Dylan said, can't find a safe space anywhere. Yeah, it's that's, just it's poor guy. When you destroy others' safe spaces, you also destroy your own. That's the <laughs> that's yes, the double edged sword. Little known the fact. true folly of LaRouge. <laughs> <laughs> Once you go anti SJW, you can't get other SJWs to protect you. I mean, that's just the way it works. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, the life the you have to live. All right. So in the 1970s. While the FBI's relationship to LaRouche at the time was mostly just laughing in their offices about political schizophrenics, <laughs> LaRouche has a different take. No, the FBI was obsessed, simply obsessed with getting him. Quote, beginning no later than the documented abortive elimination attempt of November, December 1973, the FBI unleashed a second phase of the 1973 COINTELPRO operations against me and my associates. Despite the exposure of the FBI's role behind its Communist Party assets, the FBI not only continued, but intensified and broadened the same general operation, which had been conducted through at least most of 1973. This continued into no later than September 1977. Notice that LaRouche not once has actually described what any of these operations are. He tells us when they happen. He tells us who's doing them, but not once has he actually described what happened. Yeah, they employ a lot of people. A lot of people getting a good day's work. Truly a job creator, LaRouche. He's, yeah, yeah, job creators. Lots indeed. of people are getting work because of him. <laughs> lots of people, I mean, unfortunately, they're not getting an income, but they are right. They are getting work. So Yeah, well, you know, True. you got to start somewhere. You know, well, <laughs> since the FBI kept fucking up and killing LaRouche, I mean, they're just so incompetent in the deep state. <laughs> more powerful forces were called upon to get the job done. Quote, during the period of Zbigniew Brzezinski's official reign inside the Carter administration, 1978 to 1980, two private international organizations were key in launching the continuation of former Justice Department operations. These were a private branch of British intelligence known as Frederick von Hayek's and Professor Milton Friedman's Mont Pelerin Society. And such operations of the London-created New York Council of Foreign Relations as the Zbigniew Brzezinski-led Trilateral Commission. Wow. You wow. know, guys, so I guess just as hatred of Jimmy Carter was the only <laughs> thing that brought the far right and far left together, the only thing that could bring the Austrian economists and New World Order together was hatred of Lyndon LaRouche. <laughs> you know, this convinces me that there's a conspiratorial idea that the New World Order wants to fake an alien invasion to unite the planet into a one-world tyrannical state. That's obviously wrong. All they need to do was fake one Lyndon LaRouche. And I think I think he's the plant to unite the world yeah. and then they can, you know, you know, propagate their satanic pagan death cult religion or so whatever if, they're up if to. If anyone invents time travel that when Reagan gives that speech where he's like, well, if there was an alien race and we all banded together, maybe you'd bring it. You should just have him, the speechwriter, write LaRouche in there and there would yeah. be world peace at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, I think there I'm would be. Look, yeah, I'm going to let Paul Potter get on creating that time machine. <laughs> let, let, him, let him know. <laughs> he's got the so expertise. Yep. The persecution was absolutely relentless. LaRouche hangs in there, though, against all odds of survival to tell the tale. Quote, 
The ground for a new wave of post-1982 prosecutorial operations as such was prepared during the second half of 1979 by the same New York Times which had run the 1974 cover-up for the FBI's aborted elimination operation. This Times operation represents the fourth in a series of four well-documented phrases leading up to the January 1983 launching of operations under the title of Executive Orders 12331, 12333, and 12334. The Times operation was an escalation of the worldwide defamation operations launched under joint sponsorship of the Montparolin Society Heritage Foundation and Anti-Defamation League during May 1978. That 1979 case is a crucial link in painting down the nature of the 1973 to 2000 Get LaRouche operation as a whole. <laughs> yeah, this truly is officially the ultimate in total multidimensional paranoia, I think. <laughs> LaRouche just clearly yeah. wins. Wow. Dennis on that like fractaling, was not fractaling. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, who led these prosecutorial operations? Henry Kissinger, of course. Oh, yeah, that oh, guy. Oh, God. I could smell him coming a mile away. Yeah, I bet he smells terrible, too. Oh, no way, yeah. dude. He wears, he wears perfume. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and lots of jewelry, good. so he looks lots good, of too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfume is the ultimate aphrodisiac. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, we know Kissinger is orchestrating the grand conspiracy against LaRouche, but what are his motives? LaRouche tells us there are five, quote, First was a continuing political controversy between Kissinger and me over the issue of urgent reforms in the post-1971 international monetary system. The personal controversy dated from this 1974 to 1976 interval involving Kissinger's actions in his various capacities as U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. Second was my launching of a public campaign in February 1982 to overturn Kissinger's arms control policies. This attack on existing Kissingerian arms control policies reflected my ongoing back-channel discussions with the Soviet government, discussions which led to March 23, 1983, announcement of a strategic defense initiative proposal to the Soviet government by President Ronald Reagan. And, well, you know, hey, guys, at least he admits he colluded with Russia, oh, so I yeah. enjoyed that. So. <laughs> That's true. So, so LaRouche talked to the Soviets, and that led Reagan to proposing SDI to the Soviets? This is all very confusing. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't understand. And, and actually, another form of arms control would be the removal of all that excess jewelry from Kissinger's <laughs> arms. Excessive. Yeah. Get rid of it. We need to control those arms. Absolutely. <laughs> Covered in perfume, just cling clanging all over the place. Come on. It's, a t it's much. It's a bit much. Seductive. A seductive figure. Oh, yeah. So, you know, for the third, quote, Third was our published attention to the contents of a public address which Kissinger himself had delivered to a London Chatham House audience on May 10th, 1982, in which Kissinger bragged that he had worked behind the back of his president under British direction. During that period, he served as U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. Of course. You know, again, uh, I don't want to defend Kissinger too much, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he did not say those things. Yeah. I didn't look it up, but I bet he did not say that. Yeah, I don't think he was a, uh, a traitor to the United States. Right. He might have been a traitor yeah. to human decency and morality but definitely not to the united it, it, states this, it, this speech yeah. i want to talk about how i betrayed nixon the fourth issue was our news organization's investigation of information indicating kissinger's personal involvement with israel's ariel sharon and others in a disgusting west bank land scam operation which was one of the most world's most notable 
scurrilous and profitable real estate swindles occurring at that time. I do want to remind our listeners that Lyndon LaRouge would have you know that the West Bank land scam is merely a Zionist plot, not a yes. Jewish one. Mm, yeah, of Just course. to clarify, make very clear. You know, also, you know, war crimes and homosexuality are one thing, but real estate fraud. Now that, oh, that is uh, uh, Henry Kissinger's main folly. And let's, you know, let's just leave the real estate discussion to the masters of real estate like Donald Trump. Mm. The fifth motive has something to do with a debt crisis in Mexico or something. But, you know, at this point, I realize these aren't actual motives for anything. So why go further? I mean, yeah, I'm definitely. Just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, well, motives for us to finally be done with LaRouche after this episode. (laughs) That's a a good motive to ignore the rest of these motives. (laughs) So LaRouche recounts his trial of 1988 in which he was indicted uh, for mail fraud and conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Quote, the conduct of the trial judge in that case reflected, and that most plainly, a specific and rapidly worsening corruption of U.S. law today, which is more ominous than even the horrid Nazi law associated with the legacy of Germany's Carl Schmitt and Roland Frazier. This corruption, typified by the tendency of federal courts to adopt the Lockean principle of shareholder value, is to be recognized as a combination Idiots. of radical positivism and the specific interchangeable concepts of slaveholder or shareholder value <laughs> associated with both the doctrine of the Confederate States of America and the current doctrine among a leading element of the U.S. Supreme Court, as typified by the frequent resort to sophistry by Justice Scalia today. You know, guys, I'll, I'll give LaRouche that Antonin, the devil is a real person, Scalia, <laughs> was sometimes a sophist. Okay, yeah, I'll once in a while. That. Sometimes he did, yeah. you know, tended towards sophistry. But other than that, I don't think I buy the rest of this. Yeah, sorry, yeah. One thing, I don't think we've really brought this up yet, is that a very common tactic, especially amongst these far-right extremist types who want to seem more intelligent, is they'll just randomly name drop people to trick others into thinking that they actually know anything. So just like, ooh, he mentioned Carl Schmidt and Roland Freisler. I've never heard of those people. He must know something, but he doesn't. He right. just picked two names out of a hat. And so, you know, just something to keep in mind, you know, when you're listening to these doofuses. LaRouche says that the judge in that 1988 case, who was Judge Albert V. Bryan Jr., was not following the rule of law, but rather, quote, the rules were the special Kafkaesque rules, which those sophists <laughs> wow. and their fellow travelers had made up for that occasion. The apologists, affecting a pose of self-righteousness and lacking any other kind of righteousness, insist that since the trial followed their rules, the proceedings were in the mouth of one later exposed mole inside the defense team, therefore fair. I would love to hear some <laughs> examples of these unfair rules, but I have a feeling they're just not forthcoming for some reason. <laughs> they're, they're not forthcoming all the way down, therefore Kafka-esque. Exactly, anyway. <laughs> exactly. LaRouche says that the system of justice must be analyzed on two levels in order to figure out whether or not it's legit. Quote, in its simpler aspect, it is to be compared in first approximation to the deductive model of a Euclidean classroom geometry as the God. derivation of proofs according to a cultivated knowledge of an underlying set of both stated and implied definitions, axioms, and postulates. However... On a higher level, the process of lawmaking and judicial procedure must recognize that in statecraft, as in physical science, all previously existing sets of definitions, axioms, and postulates are subject to change. That in the same manner that validated new universal physical principles are discovered in science. 
if what was rightly validated as true beforehand remains true, not only must false assumptions be purged, but previously omitted, newly validated principles incorporated within a multiply connected manifold of verifiable universal principles. Wow. Guys, I'm okay. pretty sure that that's just a really pretentious and confusing way of saying that we should have good law schools for lawyers and that we should have a constitutional legislative process. And of course, we already have that. But hey, you know, what do I know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we can even go even simpler. Sometimes what we thought was true turns out to be false. So we should stop believing the false things. <laughs> or even simpler, purge false shit. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah. you know, that that is actually the most boring purge in the franchise. <laughs> We're going to purge all the false beliefs of the nation. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't we'll just gloss over the fact that, you know, like. Geometry doesn't really have much to do with the law. Right. But anyway, we're going to keep going a little. <laughs> yeah, ignore that. Also, also, there was one word that really disturbed me in that part, and that was deductive. I don't know what LaRouche is doing here, falling back on deductive reasoning. Oh, oh right. shit. You Good found point. the it, one fatal flaw. Now everything falls apart yeah, and LaRouche has to start level. over again. Yeah, it's yep. not good. So LaRouche continues, quote, the most important consideration to bear in mind is to distinguish what is subject to change from what is not. What can never change under a sane rule of law is the definition of the human being as being of a different nature than all the lower species. And of course, this is weird, given that LaRouche himself has already defined plenty of people as belonging to a non-people lower species. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> He's changed the false belief that all, quote, people are in fact people. Oh. That's the mistake we've been making. So in the essay, LaRouche sometimes waxes nostalgic, and he keeps it real humble in summarizing his career. Quote, after the follies of President Richard Nixon's decisions of mid-August 1971, my situation changed rapidly because of my exceptional combination of qualifications as a cultivated original thinker and economist, and also my temperament, I began to emerge rather rapidly as a significant new political figure in our nation and among nations abroad. By 1982, my influence internationally had reached the level at which the oligarchs decided to eradicate me and everything associated with me. By the way, quick inter interlude here. Um, I'm pretty sure that if before 1982, if we're going to believe LaRouche, they'd been trying to kill him far before that. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, <laughs> they did so because they were frightened, because they fear that someone might do as I was committed to doing, utilize the impending global crisis to bring back the American system and its legacy. That indeed I will do. If I am allowed. See, there's that golden soul talk. Fuck yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, also, bad. once again, you know, he talks about his temperament being, you know, very exemplary. And if you want I got more a very good temperament, if you want more evidence of that, just listen to the first three episodes of this series and you'll yes. learn all about LaRouche's golden temperament. Oh, yeah. <laughs> LaRouche ends the essay with some food for thought. I mean, that sarcastically. <laughs> Quote, when reality shock brings your neighbors to his senses, at last, remember what I have told you about the great questions of history, justice, and the battle between oligarchs and real human beings. Now, spectators, I have given you the scorecard. Choose your sides accordingly. Now, recognize that, is, that it is increasingly often the case that only those who speak honestly of their convictions these days are telling the truth. Thus, I have told the truth you urgently need to know. So LaRouche is telling the truth because he is telling you what he actually believes. Wow. <laughs> Dude, that is beyond profound. That's pretty I incredible. Mean, deep Next food level. for thought. We're going to end this series on Lyndon LaRouche with the most insightful thing he and his cohorts ever came up with. By a mile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the truth behind the infamous Syrian chemical weapons attacks on civilians. Oh, I've been waiting. Finally. I, I'm we waiting finally for the truth it. on that. We finally know... <laughs> all the details about the false flag operation. So we're going to go into that. 
Well, let's talk about the players. First, there's, as Christopher Hitchens once put it, the, quote, human toothbrush figure of Bashir al-Assad. <laughs> and I, and I want to be clear, and, you know, Brent and I have talked about this before, it's simply out of the question that Assad is responsible for the attacks and that he's just an evil piece of shit. There's no oh, yeah, way no, no we can rule out that hypothesis from the, from the get-go. So, right. as a non-British dupe, I will simply remain agnostic until I hear LaRouche's authoritative sources on the matter, <laughs> i.e. LaRouche himself. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I also want to pause for a moment to rinse out my mouth and savor the minty flavor of this toothbrush analogy. <laughs> I like, you know, I like it. I'm going to start using it for describing, quote, race realists. From now on, I'll call them white strips. <laughs> <laughs> and white strips out. are not to be confused with white helmets. And we're going to mm, talk about them. Next. Right. <laughs> You know, so in the real world, the white helmets are an incredibly brave, laudable, nonpartisan, all-volunteer, non-governmental organization with funding as diverse as the United States, the UK, Japan, New Zealand, and Denmark, among many others. But in LaRouche world, they're simply, quote, British created. Mm, Now, in Assad's world, he goes a little further. They're simply interchangeable with Uh Al-Qaeda. So the human toothbrush and, you know, what he's all about might be coming into better focus for you at this point if you don't know anything about Assad. Yeah, so what exactly do the White Helmets do? Oh, I mean, you don't know. I mean, besides blowing up the World Trade Center and staging oh. chemical weapons attacks, you mean besides that? <laughs> yeah, besides, I know, I knew all that. You know, I'm very in the know. I just, besides oh, okay. that, what is... So, you know, I mean, okay, so according to, well, the British enemy of the people, BBC, quote... Their official the name British is Brainwashing Corporation, in case you needed to know what that stood for. Yes. <laughs> thank you for finally revealing um, the truth of the BBC. Their official name is the Syrian Civil Defense, which began in early 2013 as an organization of volunteers from all walks of life, including electricians and builders. Its main task soon became to rescue civilians in war zones in the immediate aftermath of airstrikes. And it says its volunteers have saved the lives of more than 100,000 people during the Civil War. Numbering about 3,000 volunteers, they also carry out essential repair works. Some 200 members have been killed. The White Helmets have gained worldwide praise and were nominated for the 2016 Nobel Peace Prize. Hmm. I noticed you said that um, part of their members are builders. So you mean like the Freemasons? Oh! <sighs> oh, boy. Exposed. Blowing it all apart. That's... That's not good. LaRouche Pack publishes the following on April 9th, 2018. Quote, when the hoped up video of the victims and survivors of this faux attack first appeared on BBC Saturday night, one could have wondered whether Saddam Hussein had risen from the grave with his weapons of mass destruction. Ooh. And, hey, you know, that's cute and everything. But guys, if I'm not mistaken, you know, since Assad is still around, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't think we need another Bathist psychotic mass murderer, you know, around. I, I, mm, I think yeah, one is yeah. enough. We don't need him to rise from the dead. Oh, yeah. Hey, 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 look for us. Look, look for us. Trashing Saddam Hussein, this is your typical neocon oh, talk. Yeah, Come exactly. On. When it comes to the fight between... Bathist warlords and their opponents. There are very fine people on both sides. Yes, <laughs> this is true. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So LaRouche Pack goes full Sandy Hook at one point in the article. Quote, nice. One video on BBC showed rescue workers, in square quotes, most without masks, moving about in a hallway, passing young children to one another, hosing down others, etc. Another showed people of all ages lying in a pile, some with foam around their mouths. Reuters and the London-based Syrian Observatory (laughs) ran with the story while reporting they could not confirm any chemical attack. And, you know, hey, I like how they point out the Syrian Observatory is London-based as a kind of gotcha. And still, (laughs) 
they're kind of sheepish on the ground and fully committing to their own propaganda, which I find Yeah, strange. you know, they don't want to be too extreme. You got to appeal to the <laughs> moderate whack jobs. You can't, <laughs> you can't go all moderate the way to the extreme. Jobs. Yeah, those are just dabbling. Yeah. yeah. You know, while you might think the true victims of the chemical weapons attack were the, I don't know, innocent civilians killed by chemical weapons. <laughs> yeah, I would According think According to LaRouche no, Pack, no. that would be a distortion of the real facts. Oh. The true victim, quote, <laughs> President Donald Trump is the next British target because of his desire to cooperate against terrorism with Vladimir Putin's Russia. Man. Wow. Trump, the greatest victim of all time. Move over, LaRouche. This is like the passing of the greatest victim torch right here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, the Olympics yeah. or something. Yeah. So not only is poor Trump the victim of a false flag operation, it's a false flag operation that the valiant heroes in the Putin government have warned us all about. Quote, <laughs> Russia... The target of this British stage show had warned for weeks that desperate jihadi groups had possession of chemical agents, both in eastern Ghouta and in the north of Syria, and were planning false flag chemical weapons events to bring on NATO attacks on Syrian and Russian military sites. It's weird how, so the Russians have really changed a lot in the LaRouche conspiracy theory. They started out as good, kind of like the U.S., but under the influence of British agents. Then they move yeah. to being corrupt and evil at their core and directly in bed with the Babylonian Orthodox Christians to finally, right. now they're the valiant defenders of the golden soul humanist elite. It's amazing I mean, the I transformation mean, Dylan, that's happened. Putin just has this uncanny circle. ability to change hearts and minds. Mm, okay? Good point. And hey, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, for example, used to criticize ah. the Russian government too, but has since become a fellow traveler of the vanguard for human souls, appearing on uh. RT frequently. Roger Waters is also a white helmet truther. Mm. On stage at a concert in 2017, speaking about somebody that wanted to come on stage to talk about the chemical weapons attack in Doma, Syria in April of the same year, Roger Waters said, quote, uh, he's one voice. I personally think he's entirely wrong. I believe the organization that he purports to represent and who he supports, the Watt Helmets, are a fake organization that is creating propaganda for jihadists and terrorists. That's what I believe. Well, you know, at least he, at least he doesn't have a large audience, actually, that he you know, <laughs> is um, speaking to on the giant stage. Um, but, you know, his band is one of the best bands of all time. So I guess he's done something right in his life. I, yeah. I agree, Brandon. You know, I it. really love their song, Wish You Were Informed. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was yeah, a good one. It goes like this. <clears throat> so, so you think you can tell fake news from the real, <laughs> le legit publications from trash. Can you tell what you feel from the cold hard facts, the truth from the crap? Do you think you can tell? <laughs> Oh, so I, in the uh, purposes of full disclosure, I do not have the same appreciation for Pink Floyd's work as my co-hosts. And I've known for a yeah, long time right. that the person who wrote Uncomfortably Numb was not to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it in my gut. You were ahead of us there. Um, yeah, in all seriousness, though, I do love Pink Floyd. Dylan's wrong about that, but that's okay. Anyway, so in summary, so we're going to end here. In summary... Humanitarian organizations are terrorist groups, and when innocent people are brutally murdered with chemical weapons, the real victims, of course, are Trump, Putin, and Assad. And uh, I hope if you've all learned anything from LaRouche, at least you've learned that. So tr so Trump, Putin, and Assad. Oh, the true axis of victimhood. Oh, I like that. Oh, poor, poor guys. That's great stuff. 
And so we're going to end just with a short note that Lyndon LaRouche has, in fact, died. He died, you know, only a few weeks ago, February 12th of this year. And as of yet, we do not know how or where he died. And again, my theory is that he simply died of being old as fuck, being 96 (laughs) years young. Let's check the coroner, though. We don't know. Or was he assassinated by a disease disguised as a president in a tan suit? Oh. Who decides, oh, listeners? No. We well, don't I know. Mean, look, since truth isn't truth anymore, just decide what you want is true. That's what I say. Yeah. Whatever your honest That's conviction right. is about how he died is what is true. That's right. And with that, this concludes our fourth part of our Lyndon LaRouche series and the series itself. So, Brent Forrest, what have you learned about the majesty of the golden soul humanist elite, Lyndon LaRouche? Wow, I've learned uh, a, I've learned a few things. Go ahead. I mean, first off, I knew about Lyndon LaRouche before we did this series, but I didn't know much about him. I'd only mm-hmm. seen him in a couple of like Alex Jones interviews and things like that. And I knew he was bad, but I didn't know he was this bad. So the yeah. thing that I truly learned was just how bad he is. Yeah, same here. Um, the, the true godfather of oh, yeah. this, I feel. One of the originals. Yeah. And the other thing that stuck out, of course, was this insane ludicrous slander of the white helmets which is just so despicable and i don't know if a lot of people know this but um, the russian government did have a huge campaign to try to brand them as terrorists and it really did succeed many people believe this and including of course roger waters and (laughs) of course you know there were a few scandals that certain white helmet people were caught in but none of the scandals were at the organizational or leadership level they were all done at the volunteer level and there was a few of these isolated incidents and what would happen is the russian government would hype up those different incidents to prove that they were part of a terrorist organization i see i see it's it's like the strategy of breitbart for example having tons of articles about you know individual undocumented immigrants who commit yes who commit violence disproportionately yeah which yeah yeah, yeah, those people exist but that's no indication about right undocumented immigrants as a whole. So it seems like that kind of a similar strategy. Yeah, I once read on The Guardian, I believe, there's a really good article that, well, that goes into detail about how Russia went on that anti-white helmet campaign and how they were able to pull it off. But obviously it goes without saying that they are not a terrorist organization and it's all bullshit and (laughs) that was true slander. It would be a big mistake. It would be, there would be some egg on the face of the Nobel committee. If you award a Nobel peace (laughs) prize to a terrorist organization. So yeah, it's it's also good for them. It's absolutely ludicrous. (laughs) My, my, you know, main takeaway is obviously like you guys, you hammer this point home and I think it's great is that if you're, speaking and you're using a lot of technical language and dropping names and just making your flowery language with Euclid, you know, geometry and using a lot of numbers for no yeah, reason. Geometry Different is how you Geometry, base a lot of project names. Yeah, exactly. Um, usually it's hard to see and or not be convinced, you know, that the, this man is seriously saying something profound, but it's, it's really just boiled down to what we were saying earlier. It's just a bunch of bullshit really and, yeah. and nonsense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this guy is really uh, just despicable human. I don't really uh, want to think of him again, to be honest with you. But and we I never have maybe. to again because we're done. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Dylan? What did you did you glean from all this um, this delightful golden soul talk? So, I mean, I, I think a few things. One is how there's a very common refrain when talking about the alt right or white supremacists or all those folks about I can't be in league with them because I'm Jewish or I'm African-American or I'm 
you know, gay or what have you, where it's about the ideas. And I think what the LaRouche cult shows is how you can indoctrinate people into having self-hating ideas. And it's exactly what he did. I think the one thing we've hyped is how a quarter of the LaRouche organization were Jewish. But that doesn't mean that the ideas are not anti-Semitic to their core. And that is a big theme these days about, oh, this guy can't be racist. This organization can't be racist because, look, there's people of that very race that supposedly they hate. So therefore, they can't be racist. Yeah, exactly. And how, you know, people who who are kind of like on the stepping stone. So there's been a lot of talk about how, you know, YouTube rabbit holes radicalizing people Mm -hmm. and how people who are African-American or Jewish or gay or belong to other minority groups, they can have a crumb of the total end game fascist ideology. They might not have the whole piece of the pie and they might reject the whole pie, but they're still breadcrumbs on the trail to hard alt-right fascism. And I think this is something that's easy. It's just this easy tactic of, I have nothing to do with this at all. I'm 100% against it because of the group I belong to, but it's the ideas. And it's the spreading of the ideas that has a causal role in leading people ultimately to, for example, in New Zealand, murdering 50 people. Yep. Right. I, and another thing that I learned from the LaRouche episodes that we did is more about the coded anti-Semitism as we talked before. Yeah. One thing that's interesting is that I believe that a lot of people out there make these illusions without knowing it. And David Icke might be a good example of that. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. like David Icke that spout a lot of anti-Semitic things without quite knowing it. It's very possible that you could have a bunch of people that are anti-Semites and they just have no clue that they are too. And that's another yeah. Yeah. thing that can happen. Yeah, definitely. That's so true. Yeah. You know, I think we're playing a very, very tiny role in all this right now. And I think it's a matter of people who are in, you know, this is a word that people, people who are fascist love to hate on privilege, people who have a, a certain kind of privilege that we do in terms of, you know, our, you know, our non-minority mm-hmm. status is to not be nice, but to be able to, relate to people who are in the midst of the language, so to speak, and who are trading in these code words, but who don't necessarily understand the, you know, the coded language, for example. Yeah. 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 And so that is it for our Lyndon LaRouche series. We love to hear from our audience. So let us know what we got right, what we got very wrong. You know, maybe we should be trying to create the golden soul humanist elite. Who knows? So if you want to <laughs> let us know about that, you can send us an email, ordinary at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter at NDCIO or on Instagram at ordinary. You can also visit our website, nundarecalitordinary.com, where you'll find links to subscribe to our series, links to our other episodes, as well as a donation page, which is nundarecalitordinary.com slash donate, where you can donate cryptocurrency to us. And we have public addresses for Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and Ethereum on there. And once again, if you could, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to our podcast. And if you could, for us, if you could let five friends know about us, that would greatly boost our our numbers and boost the amount of people we can interact with and talk to. You know, word of mouth is really how podcasts like us are able to spread. And so we would be insanely grateful 
if you could do that for us. And let us know if you have suggestions for the podcast, uh, weird beliefs and ideas you would like us to cover in the future. And with that, we are done. Done.